0: it wouldn't make sense when Peter says in his second letter but we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ if if we were enlightened to the point where we know everything about the Bible no that's not it's not what John is saying what he is saying is that you know because the spirit has illumined your thinking you know who Christ is you didn't figure that out on your own you know him you know who he is you know the plan of salvation he's opened your mind to it
1: A Christian doesn't know everything. He doesn't understand everything, but he does know who Christ is and what he has done. He knows this rationally, but he also knows it on a personal level because he has a relationship with Christ. I am really excited about what Pastor Steve is teaching us on Verse by Verse today. We don't have to live in doubt and fear anymore. We can be sure because of what has happened to us through Jesus. Verse by Verse is a ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our goal is to teach clearly the truth of God's Word. We're so glad you're listening with us today. Now, here's Pastor Steve.
0: Once again, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 John, John's first letter, and I want to read to you a passage that we started to study last Sunday night, starting at verse 18. John says, "Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth, who is the liar, but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, Let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which He Himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. We want to continue our study of these verses by first reminding ourselves that in the big picture, in the overall purpose of this letter, the ultimate purpose of this passage is like every other passage in 1 John. It is designed to help genuine Christians have assurance of their salvation we keep coming back to that because John said at the end of this letter chapter 5 verse 13 the summation these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and so the whole book revolves around this one theme assurance of salvation And so what John does is throughout this letter, he gives us tests. He's given several tests already to help Christians who are troubled over whether or not they're actually saved to know that they can know that they're saved. He's given us several tests. Now, it might be helpful, I thought, at this point for us to consider why there are genuine Christians who don't have assurance of their salvation. I'm talking about real Christians, real believers, those who have truly been converted, but they do not have assurance of their salvation. Why is that? Let me offer you several suggestions. First of all, it may be an attack from Satan. He is called the master liar. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the tempter. And he would like nothing better for a believer to be unsure of whether or not they're saved so they would be ineffective in their lives because Christians who don't have assurance of their salvation have no joy, no peace or very little peace in their lives and they have an overwhelming focus on themselves. They really can't serve others. They're, they're consumed with themselves. Satan would love nothing more than to have all of us like that, wondering every day, am I really saved in my life? That's bondage. That's bondage. And he whispers oftentimes to us, how can you be a Christian when you do such a thing? That's really Satan. He wants to devour us spiritually. He is like a roaring lion walking about, seeking someone to devour. He wants us to be self-centered and ineffective. So one reason why believers do struggle with assurance issues is, I believe, because Satan tempts us, whispers to us, condemns us. Secondly, some believers struggle with assurance of salvation because they base too much of assurance on their own feelings. They're up and down emotionally, so instead of walking by faith, they rely too much on their emotions. And so as a consequence, they are in and out of assurance depending on how they feel at the moment. Some days they might feel like they're saved, other days they might feel like they're not saved. I, I knew a man years ago who lacked assurance of his salvation because he kept waiting for some kind of an emotional buzz, thinking that, that when Paul speaks in Romans chapter 8 about it, his spirit bears witness with our spirit, that's what it's talking about. Some type of a mystical, internal, emotional feeling, and, and he didn't have that. So he concluded that he must not be saved. So it's not it's not emotions, but some people rely too much upon them. Third, there are some Christians who have assurance problems because they don't know when they were saved, especially if they were saved when they were very young. And therefore, because they cannot pinpoint a specific time for their entrance into the kingdom, they wonder if there ever was a time when they entered it, especially... If they have been raised in a certain type of evangelical church that says, you must know when you were saved. And people give testimonies. They not only know the hour they were saved, they know where the second hand was. They they know the minute that they were saved. Well, I I want you to know, Scripture never says that we have to know the moment we were saved. Now, there was a moment in time that we passed from death to life. God knows when that moment was, but we're not always conscious of that. Listen, some of the godliest Christians that I have read about in church history could not pinpoint the precise moment they were saved. I don't believe I have ever read anywhere, and someone maybe later can correct me, where John Calvin ever wrote about a specific moment of being converted. I've read about Calvin. I do not recall that he ever testified, I know in such and such a time that I was saved. Nor do I believe that Jonathan Edwards, the great American theologian, ever spoke of the exact time that he was converted. Nor do I ever recall reading about John Knox, who was the leading reformer in Scotland, ever noting that he knew the precise time of his salvation. I have read two mammoth biographies of one of my favorite expositors, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, And I don't recall in all of those two mammoth volumes of him ever saying, I know the precise time when I was saved. And more of a contemporary, John MacArthur states that growing up in a pastor's home, there never was a time that he recalled not believing in Jesus. And there are many like that. So it's very possible that someone here struggles with assurance of salvation because they don't know when they were saved. Scripture never says you have to know when you're saved. If you are saved, there'll be evidence that there was a point in time. And finally, some believers have problems with assurance because their Christian walk is just inconsistent. It's inconsistent, and therefore they are troubled by their sin. And they have difficulty believing that they have really been converted. Well, the answer to that is repent. Repent. But even some believers who do demonstrate lifestyle obedience to Christ struggle with assurance because they focus too much on their sinfulness and not enough on the gospel of grace. They think too much about themselves and they condemn themselves rather than preaching the gospel to themselves. Now, Going back to this issue, if you're inconsistent in your Christian life, there may be cause for assurance problems. So get consistent and get right with the Lord and enjoy the assurance that God offers. Now, the Apostle John does have an answer and a cure to offer every Christian who has ever doubted their salvation. And his answer is, test yourself Examine your life and see if the evidence is there by way of the the way you live, the way you think, to prove and demonstrate that your life has been transformed by saving grace. As Chuck Swindoll once said, if you've got the root, then we'll see the fruit. That's, That's really what 1 John is about. If you are rooted in Christ, or more appropriately, he's rooted in you, then there will be a demonstration in your life, if there 's absolutely no demonstration, then you still need to be converted now that 's why this first letter of john 's is actually a series as we said of tests that each of us can take to determine if we demonstrate if we demonstrate that we have new life in Christ. so he speaks in chapter one about the test of walking in the light. He speaks in chapter one about the test of confessing our sins because true believers confess their sin they do repent regularly. He speaks in chapter 2 of the test of obedience to the word of of God. True believers do obey, and when they don't obey, they long to obey. He speaks in chapter 2 of the test of loving the brethren. True believers want want to hang with God's people. They love God's people. They enjoy the fellowship. They love nothing more than getting together with Christians and discussing the things of God. And true believers, as we've seen in the last few weeks, true believers... Do not love the world. They love the brethren. They do not love the world. Now, each of these realities prove that we've been born again and that Christ lives in us and through us. Now, in the passage before us, we have still another test by John. We began looking at this last week, but it is the test of doctrine or the test of the truth. Do we believe the right doctrine about Jesus Christ? In these verses, John calls us to test ourselves based on how we relate to the truth, specifically about Christ himself, who he is. And the way John does this is he presents a contrast between the way that unbelieving false teachers, known as Gnostics, related to the truth, and the way that true believers relate to the truth. Now, you'll see in this passage, John going back and and forth as he writes about unbelievers, then he writes about believers, then he goes back to writing about unbelievers. There's a constant contrast in these verses. Now, the way the passage unfolds is that John tells us that true believers, genuinely converted people, relate to the truth about Christ and the message of salvation four ways. We relate to the truth four ways. We saw the first way last week. John tells us that true believers know the truth, verses 18 through 21. Let me read it again. chogram he said, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, that Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know You all know, and then he concludes, I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Now, John writes in these verses that in contrast to the unbelieving Gnostic false teachers, those people who thought that salvation came through knowledge, enlightenment, in contrast to them who, by the way, at this point had left the the church and the fellowship of God's people because they were antichrist against Christ in their attitude and therefore opposed to the truth about Jesus. John tells us that in contrast to them, true believers know the truth. Unbelievers do not know the truth. That's why they leave the church because nobody eventually wants to hear them. They don't know the truth, they're propagating error, and the church says, "No, that's not right." And so they pick up their bags and they go and start another church or another religious organization. But John tells us that, in contrast, true believers know the truth. And the reason they know the truth, he tells us in verse 20, is because he writes, you have an anointing from the Holy One, meaning that the Holy Spirit indwells each believer and teaches us to know the truth about Jesus Christ. Now, when John says at the end of verse 20, Notice this, that you all know. He simply means that all Christians know who Christ is, and they know the basic plan of salvation. Keep in mind, this does not mean that we know all there is to know about the Bible, or else there'd be no sense in coming on Sunday evenings and studying it, or Sunday mornings. Or it wouldn't make sense when Peter says in his second letter, but we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If, if we were enlightened to the point where we know everything about the Bible. No, that's not that's not what John is saying. What he is saying is that you know, because the Spirit has illumined your thinking, you know who Christ is. You didn't figure that out on your own. You know him. You know who he is. You know the plan of salvation. He's opened your mind to it. This is quite consistent with what Paul taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's look at that. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verses 12 through 14, Paul says, Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Which words, Paul said, we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Paul said that we have the Spirit of God. He enlightens us, and through we who are apostles, the Spirit of God uses us to teach his word. And then he concludes in verse 14, but the natural man, meaning the unsafe man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That's why you and I can speak to brilliant people, brilliant in their fields, High academic credentials, high IQ, but they don't get it. They don't get it because they don't know Christ. Listen, if you're a true Christian, regardless of your lack of intelligence or your limited education or your modest natural abilities, you know the truth about Christ and salvation because the Holy Spirit has enlightened you. You see, this is quite a dig, really, at the Gnostics, who prided themselves on being enlightened. And what John is really telling them is, you don't know the truth. That's why you left. But you who have stayed, you know the truth. Don't be intimidated by the Gnostics, who say, you don't know what we know. It doesn't matter what they know, you know the truth. See, what John is really saying is that the Holy Spirit is our resident truth teacher. Therefore, we don't have to be concerned about ever abandoning the gospel. If you know Christ, you will never abandon the gospel. You will never abandon Jesus Christ and the message of salvation like the Gnostics did because the Spirit has taught us the truth. We know it. We know the truth. Now, as we continue testing ourselves concerning our relationship to the truth, we want to look at one more weight. There are four of them, but one more weight that believers relate to the truth. John tells us, that true believers not only know the truth, but secondly, they also believe the truth. In knowing it, they believe it. Verse 22. He writes, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Now with this statement, John uses very strong language. Exceedingly strong language to expose the primary, and I might add, the fatal error of the Gnostic teachers. He tells us that those who have left the church and left the fellowship of God's people have left because they were wrong, not in a minor issue, but they were wrong in their view of Jesus Christ. That's a major issue. He tells us that they denied that Jesus is the Christ. And in doing so, he writes, they are liars, liars. Now, notice that in calling them liars, John actually emphasizes the seriousness of this lie. Notice what he says. I don't know how your Bible's translated, but the way it is in the Greek and the way it is in my New American Standard Bible, it says, who is the liar? There's a definite article there. Not who is a liar. Who is the liar? Liar, indicating that this is the lie that surpasses all other lies. Why is this such a significant lie? I mean, all lies are significant, but this is more significant than any other lie because of its horror and its significance. Since, in the words of my friend and fellow pastor Rick Kress, this lie strikes at the heart of the gospel. That's why John emphasizes it. This is not a secondary lie, if we could put it that way. This is primary. And the particular lie that these Gnostic teachers were pushing is that Jesus is not the Christ. John says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now, in what way were these Gnostic teachers denying that Jesus is the Christ? Well, let's back up and have an understanding. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which simply means the anointed one. Why is Jesus of Nazareth called the anointed one? Because Old Testament servants of God were anointed with oil when they were officially set apart for their service and divinely empowered for that service. That would be a priest, a prophet, a king. Jesus is the anointed one who has been anointed with the Holy Spirit for his work as prophet, priest, and king. So he's known as Jesus Christ. As I've said many times, Christ was not his last name. He is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one. And Christos is the equivalent of the Hebrew word that we translate Messiah, Mashiach, Messiah. So when we speak of Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah, we are saying that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the anointed one. But understand this, that when John says these Gnostic liars were denying that Jesus is the Christ, he was not saying that the Gnostics were simply denying that Jesus was the predicted Messiah, much like a Jewish person today. If you witness to them, they might say, I don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. That's not what John is saying. There's something deeper here, a lot deeper than that. John adds some clarity to what he was talking about here concerning the denial of the false teachers by what he says in some other places in his letters. By that I mean, let's look at 1 John chapter 4, just just a chapter 2 over. Chapter 4, notice verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ, note this, has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. Then look at at 2 John, 2 John verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Now, it would appear based on these statements, and what we know from later writings of later Gnostic teachers, that the error that John and his readers were fighting was the teaching that, and note this, this is at the heart of the issue, that Jesus was only a man, they taught. Jesus was only a man, and that the Christ Spirit, as they called it, came upon this man Jesus at his baptism, and left him before the crucifixion. In other words, they believed that Jesus of Nazareth was a mere man, only a man, who was given divine powers for just a brief period of time. And in believing this, John said, they have denied that Jesus is God in human flesh. That's why in these other verses he talks about coming in the flesh. They deny that Jesus Christ is one person possessing two perfect natures, both human and divine. Essentially then, what the Gnostic teachers were doing, they were denying the incarnation, God becoming man. No wonder John was so annoyed. No wonder John was so forceful so as to call these, these people liars, bold liars.
1: Our faith tells us clearly that Jesus is the eternal God who has come in the flesh in order to save us from our sins. When we are convinced of this, it's not because we are smarter than others. It's only because God has convinced us through His Holy Spirit to accept the truth by faith. That's one of the ways we know that we are saved, because we agree with the truth and are not deceived by the lie of Satan. As always, you can listen to this message again on our website, radio all one word, dot o-r-g. You can also listen to previous messages in the series. You can call us at 727-239-0306 for prayer or help. Don't forget to tune in next time as we continue the series on the tests of worldliness. For all the staff, I'm Jerry Pruden saying, we look forward to being with you next time on Verse by Verse.